4. Standing the force of the heart and the state of the blood vessels in general, to materially modify the circulation in different spots. Blushing, which is simply a local modification of the circulation, is effected in this way. Some emotion takes possession of the mind, and the action of the nerves, which ordinarily keep up a moderate contraction of the muscular coats of the arteries, is lost, and the vessels relax and become distended with arterial blood, which is a warm and bright red fluid, thereupon a burning sensation is felt, and the skin grows red, the degree of the blush depending upon the intensity of the emotion, the pallor produced by fright and by extreme anxiety, is purely the result of a local modification of the circulation brought about by an overstimulation of the nerves which supply the small arteries, causing them to contract, and to thus cut off more or less completely the supply of blood. Chapter VIII. Physiological Anatomy. The Organs of Respiration. The organs of respiration are the trachea, or windpipe, the bronchia, formed by the subdivision of the trachea, and the lungs, with their air cells. The trachea is a vertical tube situated between the lungs below, and a short quadrangular cavity above called the larynx, which is part of the windpipe, and used for the purpose of modulating the voice in speaking or singing. In the adult, the trachea, in its unextended state, is from four and one half to five inches in length, about one inch in diameter, and, like the larynx, is more fully developed in the male than in the female. It is a fibrocartilaginous structure, and is composed of flattened rings, or segments of circles. It permits the free passage of air to and from the lungs. The bronchia are two tubes, or branches, one proceeding from the windpipe to each lung. Upon entering the lungs, they divide and subdivide until, finally, they terminate in small cells, called the bronchial or air cells, which are of a membranous character. Illustration, Figure 43, An Ideal Representation of the Respiratory Organs, 3, The Larynx, 4, The Trachea, 5, 6, The Bronchia, 9, 9, 9. 9. Air cells. 1. 1. 1. 2. 2. 2. Outlines of the lungs. The lungs are irregular conical organs rounded at the apex, situated within the chest, and filling the greater part of it, since the heart is the only other organ which occupies much space in the thoracic cavity. The lungs are convex externally, and conform to the cavity of the chest, while the internal surface is concave for the accommodation of the heart. The size of the lungs depends upon the capacity of the chest. Their color varies, being of a pinkish hue in childhood but of a gray, mottled appearance in the adult. They are termed the right and left lung. Each lung resembles a cone with its base resting upon the diaphragm, and its apex behind the collarbone. The right lung is larger though shorter, than the left, not extending so low, and has three lobes, formed by deep fissures, or longitudinal divisions, while the left has but two lobes. Each lobe is also made up of numerous lobules, or small lobes, connected by cellular tissue, and these contain great numbers of cells. The lungs are abundantly supplied with blood vessels, lymphatics, and nerves. The density of a lung depends upon the amount of air which it contains. Thus, experiment has shown that in a fetus which has never breathed, the lungs are compact and will sink in water, but as soon as they become inflated with air, they spread over a larger surface and are therefore more buoyant. Each lung is invested, as far as its root, with a membrane, called the pleura, which is then continuously extended to the cavity of the chest, thus performing the double office of lining it, and constituting a partition between the lungs. The part of the membrane which forms this partition is termed the mediastinum, 
inflammation of this membrane is called pleurisy. The lungs are held in position by the root, which is formed by the pulmonary arteries, veins, nerves, and the bronchial tubes. Respiration is the function by which the venous blood, conveyed to the lungs by the pulmonary artery, is converted into arterial blood. This is effected by the elimination of carbonic acid, which is expired or exhaled from the lungs, and by the absorption of oxygen from the air which is taken into the lungs, by the act of inspiration or inhalation. The act of expiration is performed chiefly by the elevation of the diaphragm and the descent of the ribs, and inspiration is principally effected by the descent of the diaphragm and the elevation of the ribs. Illustration, Figure 44, A Representation of the Heart and Lungs, 4, The Heart, 5, The Pulmonary Artery, 8, Aorta, 9, 11, Upper Lobes of the Lungs, 10, 13, Lower Lobes, 12, Middle Lobe of the Right Lung, 2, Superior vena cava. 3. Inferior vena cava. When the muscles of some portions of the air passages are relaxed, a peculiar vibration follows, known as snoring. Coughing and sneezing are sudden and spasmodic expiratory efforts, and generally involuntary. Sighing is a prolonged deep inspiration, followed by a rapid, and generally audible expiration. It is remarkable that laughing and sobbing, although indicating opposite states of the mind, are produced in very nearly the same manner. In hiccough, the contraction is more sudden and spasmodic than in laughing or sobbing. The quantity of oxygen consumed during sleep is estimated to be considerably less than that consumed during wakefulness. It is difficult to estimate the amount of air taken into the lungs at each inspiration, as the quantity varies according to the condition, size, and expansibility of the chest. But in ordinary breathing it is supposed to be from 20 to 30 cubic inches. The consumption of oxygen is greater when the temperature is low, and during digestion, all the respiratory movements, so far as they are independent of the will of the individual, are controlled by that part of the brain called the medulla oblongata. The respiratory, or breathing process, is not instituted for the benefit of man alone, for we find it both in the lower order of animals and in plant life. Nature is very economical in the arrangement of her plants, since the carbonic acid, which is useless to man, is indispensable to the existence of plants, and the oxygen, rejected by them, is appropriated to his use. In the lower order of animals, the respiratory act is similar to that of the higher types, though not so complex, for there are no organs of respiration, as the lungs and gills are called. Thus, the higher the animal type, the more complex its organism. The effect of air upon the color of the blood is very noticeable. If a quantity be drawn from the body, Thus being brought into contact with the air, its color gradually changes to a brighter hue. There is a marked difference between the properties of the venous and the arterial blood. The venous blood is carried, as we have previously described, to the right side of the heart and to the lungs, where it is converted into arterial blood. It is now of uniform quality, ready to be distributed throughout the body, and capable of sustaining life and nourishing the tissues. Man breathes by means of lungs but who can understand their wonderful mechanism, so perfect in all its parts, though every organ is subservient to another, yet each has its own office to perform, the minute air cells are for the aeration of the blood, the larger bronchial tubes ramify the lungs, and suffuse them with air, the trachea serves as a passage for the air to and from the lungs, while at its upper extremity is the larynx, which has been fitly called the organ of the human voice, at its extremity we find a sort of shield, called the epiglottis, the office of which is supposed to be to prevent the intrusion of foreign bodies. Chapter IX. 
physiological anatomy the skin, through digestion and respiration, the blood is continually supplied with material for its renewal, and, while the nutritive constituents of the food are retained to promote the growth of the body, those which are useless or injurious are in various ways expelled, there are, perhaps, few parts of the body more actively concerned in this removal than the skin, illustration, figure 46, an ideal view of the papillae, 1, 1, cutis vera, 2.2, papillary layer, 3, 3, arteries of the papillae, 4, 4, nerves of the papillae, 5, 5, veins of the papillae, the skin is a membranous envelope covering the entire body, it consists of two layers, termed the cutis vera, or true skin, and the epidermis, or cuticle, the cutis vera is composed of fibers similar to those of the cellular tissue, it consists of white and yellow fibers, which are more densely woven near the surface than deeper in the structure, the white gives strength, the yellow strength and elasticity combined, the true skin may be divided into two layers, differing in their characteristics, and termed respectively the superficial or papillary layer, and the deep or fibrous layer, upon the external surface, are little conical prominences, known as papillae, the papillae are irregularly distributed over the body, in some parts being smaller and more numerous than in others, as on the finger ends, where their summits are so intimately connected as to form a tolerably smooth surface, it is owing to their perfect development, that the fingertips are adapted to receive the most delicate impressions of touch, although every part of the skin is sensitive, yet the papillae are extremely so, for they are the principal means through which the impressions of objects are communicated, each papilla not only contains a minute vein and artery, but it also encloses a loop of sensitive nerves, when the body is exposed to cold, these papillae can be more distinctly seen in the form of prominences, commonly known as, goose pimples, illustration, figure 47, a section of the skin, showing its arteries and veins, a arterial branches, bb capillaries in which the branches terminate, c, the venous trunk into which the blood from the capillaries flows, the internal, or fibrous layer of the skin, contains numerous depressions, each of which furnishes a receptacle for fat, while the skin is supplied with a complete network of arteries, veins, and nerves, which make it sensitive to the slightest touch. It also contains numerous lymphatic vessels, so many that they are invisible to the naked eye. Among the agents adapted for expelling the excretions from the system, few surpass the sudoriferous glands. These are minute organs which wind in and out over the whole extent of the true skin, and secrete the perspiration, though much of it passes off as insensible transpiration, yet it often accumulates in drops of sweat, during long continued exercise or exposure to a high temperature. The office of the perspiration is twofold, it removes noxious matter from the system, and diminishes animal heat, and thereby equalizes the temperature of the body, it also renders the skin soft and pliable, thus better adapting it to the movements of the muscles, the sebaceous glands, which are placed in the true skin, are less abundant where the sudoriferous glands are most numerous, and vice versa, here, as elsewhere, nature acts with systematic and intelligent design. The perspiratory glands are distributed where they are most needed, in the eyelids, serving as lubricators, in the ear passages, to produce the cerumen, or wax, which prevents the intrusion of small insects, and in the scalp, to supply the hair with its natural pomatum. Illustration, figure 48. A perspiratory gland, highly magnified. 1, 1, the gland, 2, 2 excretory ducts uniting to form a tube which tortuously perforates the cuticle at 3, 
and opens obliquely on its surface at 4. Illustration, figure 50. Anatomy of the skin. 5. 5. Cutties be true skin. 4. 4. Nervous tissue. 3. 3. Sensitive layer in which are seen the nerves. 2. 2. The layer containing pigment cells. 1. 1. Epidermis cuticle. The epidermis, or cuticle, so called because it is placed upon the skin, is the outer layer of the skin. Since it is entirely destitute of nerves and blood vessels, it is not sensitive, like the cutis vera. It has two surfaces composed of layers, the internal, or reedy mucosum, which is made up chiefly of pigment cells, is adapted to the irregularities of the cutis vera, and sends prolongations into all its glandular follicles. The external surface, or epidermis proper, is elastic, destitute of coloring matter, and consists of mere horny scales. As soon as dry, they are removed in the form of scurf, and replaced by new ones from the cutis vera. These scales may be removed by a wet sheet pack, or by friction. The cuticle is constantly undergoing renewal. This layer serves to cover and protect the nervous tissue of the true skin beneath. We may here observe that the cuticle contains the pigment for coloring the skin. In dark races, as the Negro, the cuticle is very thick and filled with black pigment. The radiation of animal heat is dependent upon the thickness and color of this cuticle. Thus, in the dark races, the pigment cells are most numerous, and in proportion as the skin is dark or fair do we find these cells in greater or lesser abundance. The skin of the albino is of pearly whiteness, devoid even of the pink or brown tint which that of the European always possesses. This peculiarity must be attributed to the absence of pigment cells which, when present, always present a more or less dark color. The theory that climate alone is capable of producing all these diversities is simply absurd. The Esquimo, who live in Greenland and the Arctic regions of America, are remarkable for the darkness of their complexion. Humboldt remarks that the American tribes of the tropical regions had no darker skin than the mountaineers of the temperate zone. Climate may modify the complexion but it cannot make it. Illustration, Figure 51. Structure of the human hair. External surface of the shaft. Showing the transverse stride and jagged boundary. Caused by the imbrications of the scaly cortex. Longitudinal section of the shaft. Showing the fibrous character of the medullary substance. And the arrangement of the pigmentary matter. Transverse sections. Showing the distinction between the cortical and medullary substances. And the central collection of pigmentary matter sometimes found in the latter, magnified 310 diameters, hairs are horny appendages of the skin, and, with the exception of the hands, the soles of the feet, the backs of the fingers and toes, between the last joint and the nail, and the upper eyelids, are distributed more or less abundantly over every part of the surface of the body, over the greater part of the surface the hairs are very minute, and in some places are not actually apparent above the level of the skin, but the hair of the head when permitted to reach its full growth, attains a length of from 20 inches to a yard, and, in rare instances, even 6 feet. A hair may be divided into a middle portion, or shaft, and two extremities, a peripheral extremity, called the point, and a central extremity, enclosed within the hair sac, or follicle, termed the root. The root is somewhat greater in diameter than the shaft, and cylindrical in form, while its lower part expands into an oval mass called the bulb. The shaft of the hair is not often perfectly cylindrical, but is more or less flattened, which circumstance gives rise to a waving and curling hair, and, when the flattening is spiral in direction, the curling will be very great. 
A hair is composed of three different layers of cell tissues, a loose, cellulose substance, which occupies its center, and constitutes the medulla, or pith, the fibrous tissue, which encloses the medulla, and forms the chief bulk of the hair, and a thin layer, which envelops this fibrous structure, and forms the smooth surface of the hair. The medulla is absent in the downy hairs, but in the coarser class it is always present, especially in white hair. The color of hair is due partly to the granules and partly to an intergranular substance, which occupies the interstices of the granules and the fibers. The quantity of hair varies according to the proximity and condition of the follicles. The average number of hairs of the head may be stated at 1.000 in a superficial square inch, and, as the surface of the scalp has an area of about 120 superficial square inches, the average number of hairs on the entire head is 120.000. The hair possesses great durability, as is evinced by its endurance of chemical processes, and by its discovery. In the tombs of mummies more than 2,000 years old, the hair is remarkable for its elasticity and strength. Hair is found to differ materially from horn in its chemical composition. According to Vauquelin, its constituents are animal matter, a greenish-black oil, a white, concrete oil, phosphate of lime, a trace of carbonate of lime, oxide of manganese, iron, sulfur, and silex. Red hair contains a reddish oil, a large proportion of sulfur, and a small quantity of iron. White hair contains a white oil, and phosphate of magnesia. It has been supposed that hair grows after death, but this theory was probably due to the lengthening of the hair by the absorption of moisture from the body or atmosphere. The nails constitute another class of appendages of the skin. They consist of thin plates of horny tissue, having a root, a body, and a free extremity. The root, as well as the lateral portion, is implanted in the skin, and has a thin margin which is received into a groove of the true skin. The undersurface is furrowed, while the upper is comparatively smooth. The nails grow in the same manner as the cuticle. Chapter X Physiological Anatomy Secretion The term secretion, in its broadest sense, is applied to that process by which substances are separated from the blood, either for the reparation of the tissues or for excretion. In the animal kingdom this process is less complicated than in vegetables. In the former it is really a separation of nutritive material from the blood. The process, when effected for the removal of it feet matter, island in a measure, chemical, and accordingly the change is greater. Three elementary constituents are observed in secretory organs, the cells, a basement membrane, and the blood vessels. Obviously, the most essential part is the cell. The physical condition necessary for the healthy action of the secretory organs is a copious supply of blood, in which the nutritive materials are abundant. The nervous system also influences the process of secretion to a great extent. Intense emotion will produce tears and the sight of some favorite fruit will generally increase the flow of saliva. The process of secretion depends upon the anatomical and chemical constitution of the cell tissues. The principal secretions are 1. Perspiration, 2. Tears, 3. Sebaceous matter, 4. Mucus, 5. Saliva, 6. Gastric juice, 7. Intestinal juice, 8. Pancreatic juice, 9. Bile, 10. Milk. Perspiration is a watery fluid secreted in minute glands, which are situated in every part of the skin, but are more numerous on the anterior surfaces of the body. Long thread-like tubes, only one one-hundredth of an inch in diameter, lined with epithelium, penetrate the skin, and terminate in rounded coils, enveloped by a network of capillaries, which supply the secretory glands with blood. 
it is estimated by cross that the entire number of perspiratory glands is 2,381,248, and the length of each glandular coil being 1 16 of an inch. We may estimate the length of tubing to be not less than 2 miles and a third. This secretion has a specific gravity of 1,003.5, and, according to Dr. Dalton, is composed of water, 995.50 chloride of sodium. 2.23 chloride of potassium, 0.24 sulfate of soda and potassa, 0.01 salts of organic acids, with soda and potassa, 2.0 to 1000.00 traces of organic matter, mingled with a free volatile acid, are also found in the perspiration, it is the acid which imparts to the secretion its peculiar odor, and acid reaction, the process of its secretion is continuous, but, like all bodily functions, it is subject to influences which augment or retard its activity. If, as is usually the case when the body is in a state of repose, evaporation prevents its appearance in the liquid form, it is called invisible or insensible perspiration. When there is unusual muscular activity, it collects upon the skin, and is known as sensible perspiration. This secretion performs an important office in the animal economy, by maintaining the internal temperature at about 100 degrees there. Even in the Arctic regions, where the explorer has to adapt himself to a temperature of 40 degrees to 80 degrees below zero, the generation of heat in the body prevents the internal temperature from falling below the standard. On the contrary, if the circulation is quickened by muscular exertion, the warmer blood flowing from the internal organs into the capillaries, raises the temperature of the skin, secretion is augmented, the moisture exudes from the pores, and perceptible evaporation begins. A large portion of the animal heat is thrown off in this process, and the temperature of the skin is reduced. A very warm, dry atmosphere can be borne with impunity but if moisture is introduced, evaporation ceases, and the life of the animal is endangered. Persons have been known to remain in a temperature of about 300 degrees there, for some minutes without unpleasant effects. Three conditions may be assigned as effective causes in retarding or augmenting this cutaneous secretion. Variations in the temperature of the atmosphere, muscular activity, and influences which affect the nerves. The emotions exert a remarkable influence upon the action of the perspiratory glands. Intense fear causes great drops of perspiration to accumulate on the skin, while the salivary glands remain inactive. Tears. The lacrimal glands are small lobular organs, situated at the outer and upper orbit of the eye, and have from six to eight ducts, which open upon the conjunctiva between the eyelid and its inner fold, this secretion is an alkaline, watery fluid, according to Dr. Dalton, its composition is as follows, water, 882.0 albuminous matter, 5.0 chloride of sodium, 13.0 mineral salts, a trace, 1000.0 the function of this secretion is to preserve the brilliancy of the eye, the tears are spread over this organ by the reflex movement of the eyelid, called winking, and then collected in the puncta lacrimalia and discharged into the nasal passage. This process is constant during life. The effect of its repression is seen in the dim appearance of the eye after death. Grief or excessive laughter usually excite these glands until there is an overflow. Sebaceous matter. Three varieties of this secretion are found in the body. A product of the sebaceous glands of the skin is found in those parts of the body which are covered with hairs, also, on the face and the external surface of the organs of generation. The sebaceous glands consist of a group of flask-shaped cavities, opening into a common excretory duct, 
Their secretion serves to lubricate the hair and soften the skin. The seruminous glands of the external auditorimenus, or outer opening of the ear, are long tubes terminating in a glandular coil, within which is secreted the glutinous matter of the ear. This secretion serves the double purpose of moistening the outer surface of the membrane tympani, or eardrum, and, by its strong odor, of preventing the intrusion of insects. The mabomian glands are arranged in the form of clusters along the excretory duct, which opens just behind the roots of the eyelashes. The oily nature of this secretion prevents the tears, when not stimulated by emotion, from overflowing the lacrimal canal, mucus. The mucous membranes are provided with minute glands which secrete a viscid, gelatinous matter, called mucus. The peculiar animal matter which it contains is termed mucosin. These glands are most numerous in the pharynx, esophagus, trachea, bronchia, vagina and urethra. They consist of a group of secreting sacs terminating at one extremity in a closed tube, while the other opens into a common duct. The mucus varies in composition in different parts of the body, but in all, it contains a small portion of insoluble animal matter. Its functions are threefold. It lubricates the membranes, prevents their injury, and facilitates the passage of food through the alimentary canal. Saliva. This term is given to the first of the digestive fluids, which is secreted in the glands of the mouth. It is a viscid alkaline liquid, with a specific gravity of about 1005, if allowed to stand, a whitish precipitate is formed, examinations with the microscope show it to be composed of minute, granular cells and oil globules, mingled with numerous scales of epithelium, according to Bitter and Schmidt, the composition of saliva is as follows, water, 995.16 organic matter, 1.34 sulfocyanide of potassium, 0.06 0.06 phosphates of sodium, calcium and magnesium. 98 chlorides of sodium and potassium. 84 mixture of epithelium. 1.6 to 1000.002 kinds of organic matter are present in the saliva. 1. Term tyolin imparts to the saliva its viscidity, and it obtained from the secretions of the parotid, submaxillary and sublingual glands. Another, which is not glutinous is distinguished by the property of coagulating when subjected to heat. The saliva is composed of four elementary secretions, derived respectively, from the mucous follicles of the mouth, and the parotid, the submaxillary, and the sublingual glands. The process of its secretion is constant, but is greatly augmented by the contact of food with the lining membrane. The saliva serves to moisten the triturated food, facilitate its passage, and has the property of converting starch into sugar but the latter quality is counteracted by the action of the gastric juice of the stomach. Gastric juice, the minute tubes, or follicles, situated in the mucous membrane of the stomach, secrete a colorless, acid liquid, termed the gastric juice. This fluid appears to consist of little more than water, containing a few saline matters in solution, and a small quantity of free hydrochloric acid, which gives it an acid reaction. In addition to these, however, it contains a small quantity of a peculiar organic substance, termed pepsin, which in chemical composition, is very similar to tylen, although it is very different in its effects. When food is introduced into the stomach, the peristaltic contractions of that organ roll it about, and mingle it with the gastric juice, which disintegrates the connective tissue, and converts the albuminous portions into the substance called chyme, which is about the consistency of pea soup and which is readily absorbed through the animal membranes into the blood of the delicate and numerous vessels of the stomach. Once it is conveyed to the portal vein and to the liver, 
The secretion of the gastric juice is influenced by nervous conditions. Excessive joy or grief effectually retard or even arrest its flow. Intestinal juice. In the small intestine, a secretion is found which is termed the intestinal juice. It is the product of two classes of glands situated in the mucous membrane, and termed respectively, the follicles of Lieberkuhn and the glands of Brunner. The former consist of numerous small tubes, lined with epithelium, which secrete by far the greater portion of this fluid. The latter are clusters of round follicles opening into a common excretory duct. These sacs are composed of delicate, membranous tissue, having numerous nuclei on their walls. The difficulty of obtaining this juice for experiment is obvious, and therefore its chemical composition and physical properties are not known. The intestinal juice resembles the secretion of the mucous follicles of the mouth, being colorless, vitreous in appearance, and having an alkaline reaction, pancreatic juice. This is a colorless fluid, secreted in a lobular gland which is situated behind the stomach, and runs transversely from the spleen across the vertebral column to the duodenum. The most important constituent of the pancreatic juice is an organic substance, termed pancreatin. The bile, the blood which is collected by the veins of the stomach, pancreas, spleen, and intestines, is discharged into a large trunk called the portal vein, which enters the liver. This organ also receives arterial blood from a vessel called the hepatic artery, which is given off from the aorta below the diaphragm. If the branches of the portal vein and hepatic artery be traced into the substance of the liver, they will be found to accompany one another, and to subdivide, becoming smaller and smaller. Finally, the portal vein and hepatic artery will be found to terminate in capillaries which permeate the smallest perceptible subdivisions of the liver substance which are polygonal masses of not more than one-tenth of an inch in diameter, called the lobules. Every lobule rests upon one of the ramifications of a great vessel termed the hepatic vein, which empties into the inferior vena cava. There is also a vessel termed the hepatic duct leading from the liver, the minute subdivisions of which penetrate every portion of the substance of that organ. Connected with the hepatic duct, is the duct of a large oval sac, called the gallbladder. Each lobule of the liver is composed of minute cellular bodies known as the hepatic cells. It is supposed that in these cells the blood is deprived of certain materials which are converted into bile. This secretion is a glutinous fluid, varying in color from a dark golden brown to a bright yellow, has a specific gravity ranging from 1018 to 1036, and a slightly alkaline reaction. When agitated, it has a frothy appearance. Physiologists have experienced much difficulty in studying the character of this secretion from the instability of its constituents when subjected to chemical examination. Illustration, Figure 52, Section of the Liver, Showing the Ramifications of the Portal Vein, 1, Twig of Portal Vein, 2, 2, 2, 2, Interlobular Vein, 3, 3, 3, Lobules, Bilivertine is an organic substance peculiar to the bile which imparts to that SEC, 